Welcome to the C-Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about metals again. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservator based in Kimmarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Manchester. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome. Hello. So this is uh, Metals Part 2. The This time it's serious. Um, <laughs> what, what other? Metals Strike Back. Oh, nice. Metals Return. Oh, oh, okay. Return of the Metallurgy. No, I, not, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, to be honest. I'm so sorry. <laughs> when Metals Attack. I, I didn't prepare this bit. <laughs> when Acids Attack, really. <laughs> Chloe, you're doing very well with this. <laughs> The Empire Strikes Metal. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. Yeah. So today we have a special guest host with us to help us talk about metals. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, everybody. I am Bill Hawkes. I am a metals conservator. I'm currently doing my PhD at Cardiff University, and I'm also a freelance conservator working for myself as well. Mm, excellent. A scalpel for hire. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Very welcome on the show. Uh, thank you so much. And I happen to know that you have a dark past <laughs> as a jewellery maker slash... Yeah, th- tell us more. Tell us more about that bit. So, okay, so the way I got into conservation is slightly convoluted. And yes, it does involve jewellery. I worked for a long time in retail jewellery, where I sort of started on the shop floor and worked my way up to retail management. And then I got sick of the fact that the adage, the customer is always right, is very, very wrong. So I, <laughs> I, I left retail and I was sort of looking as to what to do. The thing was, it wasn't the jewellery that lost my interest. It was the customers more than anything. So I still loved jewellery. Yeah, the customers. Oh, dear. Anyway, I still <laughs> loved jewellery. And that that was the thing that really brought me into conservation. Mm. Um, I then decided to go and train as a jeweler. And I was working through various different courses and, and you know, training to be a jeweler. And we had various assessments along the way. One of the assessments, my tutor sat down with me and said, Bill, this is a lovely piece of work. It's very well finished. But the design is terrible. Oh. So I thought, okay, I thought, okay, fair enough. I, I can live with that. And then um, a few weeks later, we had another assignment to, to hand in. And another tutor sat me down and said, Bill, you're good at making, but you're no designer. Rude. So, uh, you know, it was, it was brutal honesty. It was brutal honesty. And actually... I have to thank them for for it, really, because what they suggested was that I could go one of two routes. Either I could be a repairing jewellery, just repairing modern jewellery, or I could look at historic items. Mm. <laughs> there was the link. So I went to West Dean College and I did my master's there. And in my case, I had chosen metal because it was what I knew. And that was really my route into conservation. When I, I left West Dean, we were living in Emsworth for a little while, which was lovely, but there was just no work. Mm. So we ended up moving to London. And at that point, the work 
started to come in. I didn't actually intend to work for myself. I was more looking for jobs, mm-hmm. but fate wasn't going to have it. <laughs> so um, I ended up doing a rather large project on arms and armour, mm. which mm-hmm. was totally new to me. I really quite enjoyed it. We did a little bit during our, our, our master's, but really it was new territory. And that would that just started an absolute fascination with historic objects. But... I still specialise in precious metals, though. I love hearing about how people find conservation and how they find themselves in this weird and wonderful profession, because I don't think it's really a very clear-cut route for anyone. No, I don't think so. (laughs) I think you're exceptionally lucky if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I knew I wanted to do this in school and I went straight for it. Then I think you're unusual and lucky. Uh, I think a lot of us come uh, come to this via quite a strange path, usually. I think uh, that the vast majority of people at school have never heard of conservation. Exactly. It's something It's something that they just don't ever really get to hear about. They might see the word conservation on a little sign in a museum somewhere, but actually they, they don't really know anything about conservation or what it is. Yeah, we have a lot of marketing to do, guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what are you studying your PhD on? What's the What's the topic for that? I am looking at a molecule called saponin. Now, saponin, you might have heard from the plant genus called saponica. Mm. The saponica plants, they are all a group of plants that contain relatively high levels of the substance called saponin. The word saponin is derived from the Greek sapini, which means soap. Saponin is a natural soap. So indigenous people of the Philippines, Indonesia, and that sort of area of the world, and South America, have been using saponica species plants as natural soaps for thousands of years. And I think if if you looked further around the world, you'd probably find other people who've been using it as a natural soap. But one of the Indonesian islands, the, the people there are very good silversmiths. They do a lot of very, very fine silver work, which means that to really get it clean and shiny is quite difficult. But they have found a way. What they do is they take the root of various different saponica species. They just boil it up. And as you can imagine, it's froths up into the soapy solution. And you put your black or dirty silver into it and you leave it in there for five or ten minutes as it's boiling away. And you then bring it out and lo and behold, it's absolutely bright and shiny. Wow. So my research is based on how on earth this works. Mm. We've been doing it for, you know, a hell of a long time, but no one's actually ever sort of stopped and, and went, how on earth does this work? We know it does work, but what we don't know really is how. So what I'm looking at is what the chemical mechanism is that splits the silver-sulfur bond Mm -hmm. and how that works and why it works. And hopefully, if if all goes well, then we might end up with a a commercial product. It sounds like a sustainability game changer if it's like a naturally derived thing that is potentially not, you know, super toxic. One of the biggest problems with saponica species is, largely speaking, they're weeds. Oh, Ah. 
So they grow like the clackers, and they are very often in places where you just don't want them to be. Sustainability, I don't think, is going to be a problem. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Um, I, I think it's going to be very readily available. You might recall, oh, I think it was about 1953, there was the introduction of silver dips, mm-hmm. where these, you know, these dips that you buy at the supermarket, stinky, horrible things, largely because they're based on sulfur, well, acids. So you dip your silver in and you bring it out and it's absolutely bright and shiny again. They actually damage the silver mm. at a very, very microscopic level. They etch the copper out of the silver. So every time you clean your silver, you're doing a microscopic level of damage to the object. Whereas this was what I did my master's on as well. The research that I did and the initial research indicates that actually saponin is much kinder to the alloys. Mm. So that's that's quite a big consideration as well. Yeah. yeah. I think there is a lot of work to do. There's a lot of research to do, but we'll we'll see. We'll see. Also, I love that it builds on, you know, indigenous knowledge. That's so good. That's amazing. I love it. There's a lot of knowledge that I think we, we do ignore generally and could all very well be useful. I feel like famously, I usually say that I don't work a huge amount with metals. I mean, metals are components in an awful lot of things, right? Uh, it's yeah. semi-rare yeah. for me to have like a pure metal object in front of me, perhaps. But I feel like I get into fights a lot with people about uh, maybe using <laughs> silver dip on things <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's commercially available. It is right there. It is well marketed and well established. So I, you know, I, I get it. You know, it's, it's a product to use and it's easy to get hold of. I get it. But also I do the bicker way too much with people about this. <laughs> but the, the thing is, this is the reason why mainstream museums have by and large abandoned the silver dips. You know, it, it does do damage. And in a museum setting, it probably isn't appropriate, really because mm. of the damage that it does. But then in the absence of an alternative... Yeah, exactly. You're left with coatings. You're left with lacquers and, mm. and so on, which have their own problems in and, in and of mm. themselves. What do you think about the museum uh, alternative of just letting your silver go tarnished? Ooh. It's an interesting thought because if you look at a lot of the Russian silver, mm. um, certainly silver from um, some of the countries ending in Stan, they deliberately let their silver go black. And it's a sign for them of prestige and age Mm. and importance. So for them, that's a culturally natural thing to do. Whereas for us, we prefer bright and shiny. What should we do in museums? Well, there's various different schools of thought, but I think it boils down to the age-old adage of it's all about the object. Mm. One of the things about silver tarnish is it is actually really protective. Mm, that's that's where I'm coming from, yeah. Yeah, this is the thing. Where you have a, a layer of silver sulfide on top of parent silver, the silver sulfide packs down and becomes a, a contiguous layer, which mm. prevents any further sulfidation of the silver underneath. Mm-hmm. That happens by various different mechanisms. But it, the long and the short of it is that it is actually quite protective. So, if we have something that is of exceptional value or rarity, then I think there is quite a strong argument for allowing that to happen. Mm-hmm. Because once it's happened, what's underneath is then being protected. 
So, okay, you have a degree of tarnishing on top, which, okay, is not desirable. But from there on, what's underneath is protected. So that's, that is one way of, of, of looking at it. I was going to say, I quite like this sort of notion that maybe once it's in a, let's say, a museum setting, or let's say, let's make it broader than that, a preservation setting, maybe, that it can just be tarnished because it becomes a passive layer and it's actually something beautiful to be celebrated, as were sort of the shiny objects. That's more about it's an active use, if you see what I mean. Like your silver jewelry that you wear, you might want it to be nice and shiny, or the silver that you use when you eat? Do people actually have silver cutlery and stuff anymore? I don't know. All of mine is stainless steel, guys. Strangely, they still do. (laughs) I'm like, wow, I am so basic. All of mine is stainless steel. (laughs) Perfectly safe and low maintenance. (laughs) But yeah, fair enough. Like that, Maybe it's like we can couch it in terms of maybe the shiny is active use and maybe tarnished as it has passed into a collection it's fine it would be interesting to sort of treat it as um i don't know beautiful wrinkles you know like things to be celebrated a sign of age i quite like that idea i i, I like that idea I, i'm not sure my wrinkles are beautiful but oh we're all beautiful um, one thing's <laughs> one thing's for certain the more you use silver the less it tarnishes because in the first instance with silver tarnish it's actually really soft Mm. And you can you can wipe it off with your your thumb. So the more you use it, the less it will tarnish. If you then allow it to go darker and darker and darker, and then you get to that blacky blue, that's when you can't uh, wipe it off because it has become compacted. Mm. So yeah, I think uh, I think I think you're right. It's naturally it's a very much a, a symbol of use and and utility. Is the, mm. the bright shiny silver. That's interesting then, because we we also get to the sort of our own perspectives of the value of shiny and what that is saying. So for trophies, for example, if you've got silver trophies and tarnish on them, that's a sign of respect to keep it clean. But then it's also a contributing factor to the damage. And if they're plated, then it might you know sustain more damage. But then is would there be a problem potentially of having your trophy in a museum for example next to a photograph or a or a you know video of it essentially in its shiny condition oh i mean oh that's an interesting one because that has something to do with the value that we bestow on Mm. why it needs to be shiny Mm. that is interesting because i hadn't considered that um mm. it's a very interesting ethical debate that one From my point of view or my perspective, what's really important is the object. Mm -hmm. So if that means allowing it to tarnish until such time as technology allows us to have it bright and shiny without doing any damage at all, then I would say so be it and let it tarnish because it's protected. There are various different ways now of representing things. As you say, a photo sat beside it or... Um, an interactive um, iPad display, or there's so many different ways of representing things and displaying things. It would actually be interesting to use that as a source of interpretation, if you see what I mean. Like, right now, we don't feel it's safe to do this. That does not mean that we disrespect the object. Like, to make it a discussion point, mm-hmm. and then, because then you, you could also have public input. Do you want us, if you know it destroys part of the thing, would you still want us to? Mm make it shiny it would be interesting to be able to have those sorts of conversations in like you know in gallery spaces that sort of thing like or invite 
debate about it. Feedback is, is a nice word. On the subject of silver corrosion, can we talk about the contributing factors to silver corrosion in terms of storage and display? I mean, I was already thinking that maybe if you needed something to be shiny, you could just keep that in like an extreme case where <laughs> yeah, you just remove everything that could possibly make it tarnish. Like, I, I did have thoughts about that when I was doing my master's. And one of the thoughts that I had very, very strangely was to have a sealed unit, which was full of argon. Argon, of course, is a completely inert gas, so not it's not going to cause any tarnish, nor will it allow anything else to tarnish mm-hmm. the silver because it, it would it would displace argon as a is a quite a heavy gas so it would displace any um, lighter gases like sulfur dioxide and and sulfur um, hydrogen sulfide that sort of thing so it would displace all of those there is a catch though it would be extremely expensive so and that's always the catch isn't it yeah but then there, there are other ways of of doing it sulfur strippers which are sort of resin cloths and beads and that sort of thing that absorb sulfur and and hydrogen sulfide out of the air, they can be very effective. They're never going to do the full job. And, of course, they will need replacing or replenishing Mm. um, because eventually they themselves reach saturation point, Mm -hmm. at which point they just don't absorb anymore. So while they are a, a very good method, there is some maintenance work to do there maintenance and monitoring but other than that it really comes back to things like coatings lacquer Mm. um, and and so on and they have their problems because if you take a a pretty big object you lacquer it the likelihood is there will be areas or streaks that you miss yeah Mm. i know one museum they used to get one right-handed person and one left-handed person to do different (laughs) layers of lacquer on the same object and that was actually quite effective apparently wow that's pretty funny i actually quite like that as a method the the thing for newer objects things that are being made today is that we now have new technology which is the metal argentium which is it's it's silver but there's a certain amount of germanium that's added into the alloy Okay. And the, the thing about germanium is that it it absolutely sucks up oxygen. Uh. And one of the key stages of tarnish is silver oxides. Mm. So if those are, are taken away, then it can't tarnish. So argentium just doesn't tarnish. It is silver. It's still uh, sterling-grade silver. In fact, actually, I think it's Britannic, uh, Britannic silver so it's uh, 950 no 958 but that only applies to modern made objects Mm -hmm. you know Mm. prior to i think it's 1988 you will never find anything made out of argentium Mm. how common is that like now in the jewelry industry now it is very common okay a lot of people who are dealing a lot with silver jewelry Mm. have now changed to argentium for uh, that very reason. Interesting. It, it boils yeah. down to customer satisfaction. Right. Low maintenance is a selling point. Yeah. 
Oh, interesting. I, I mean, I did vaguely know my mum used to work in a jewellery shop, so she has vaguely taught me some things about things that could be like rhodium treated or something and that sort of thing. And like just to make things not tarnish and stay shiny and silvery and stuff like that. So she has taught me some of these. Well, with, with rhodium plating, rhodium plating is it's it's a coating. Mm, yeah. Uh, when it boils down to it. And the idea with um, white, particularly it's used with white gold. Yeah. And the idea is that... When you make white gold, you are taking gold, which is inherently a very yellow metal, and you are then dulling down the yellow colour. But yeah. in diluting that yellow colour, you're also removing some of the gold percentage as well. Mm. Now, for it to be assayable or hallmarkable, shall we say, eighteen karat, let's take 18 karat gold, it still has to be 75% gold. Mm. So you can only dilute out that colour to a point where it is still 75% gold. So you're then left with a metal that is a sort of a greyish colour, pale yellow colour. Um, that can be polished, and it looks, uh, in my opinion, quite attractive when it's polished. But it's not that bright white, almost silvery uh, colour mm. that we like our white gold to be. Mm. So when you look at white gold in a commercial sense, what you're actually looking at is rhodium, because the white gold is then rhodium plated. Rhodium is a very tough metal. It's part of the platinum group of metals. It's very valuable as well. So it's one of the rarer metals. How interesting. Actually, just talking about jewellery in itself is actually super oh, yeah. intriguing. Yeah. Modern, because we have we will have to deal with it mm-hmm. either now or soon. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. <laughs> Please do like a course in like basic what, what jewellery is made of these days, because <laughs> I would totally pay for that. That would be amazing. I'm sitting here as a, you know, jewellery lover with various facial piercings. And so I'm like, oh, right. Okay. What is that? Right, okay. I should be looking into that then. (laughs) There's like a whole world that that I do not appreciate enough. And I think it's super interesting to get a little tiny glimpse into it. It's super cool. Costume jewellery, I guess, would would not be made from particularly fancy stuff because it's cheap and made to be cheap. But some things that are either fancier or are quite basic uh, will, you know, come into our collections or be things that collectors value because uh, either they're nostalgic about it, it has personal meaning to them, uh, or or because it, they are genuinely collectible pieces, you know, designer, designer pieces. These are things that we do have to worry mm. about. <laughs> I really want to jump off the coatings line. Oh, yeah, go for it. So I feel that the straightforward about gold and silver, you know, obviously silver is now I'm learning much less straightforward than I thought it was. Um, (laughs) But I feel that what I uh, encounter in my work most often is a metal thing, whether it's, you know, a, a uh, you know, pole end finial from a banner, or uh, I'm trying to think of another example, like door handle or a, a component on a chair or something like that. So essentially, domestic, not fine metalwork, domestic metalwork that has a, a coating that has rubbed off or has been cleaned off. Oh, all the time they're being cleaned off. Yeah, all the time. And this isn't. Sometimes it's flaky, flaking off, but a lot of the time it's worn off. Mm. What are those layers then? And what can we do to prevent further wear and clean? And you know, can can some of that coloration be reinstated? So what we're talking about is the lacquers and what causes them to go discoloured and flake. Is that the metal? Are they metal coating? 
most lacquers that you would use on a metal, say, for example, a brass finial, it would be something like a nitrocellulose lacquer. So as with anything that is left to time, changes happen. So -hmm. what tends to happen is between the molecules of nitrocellulose, you tend to get cross-linking. So you get Mm -hmm. this bond that would form in between one long-chain molecule and another long-chain molecule. Mm -hmm. And that has the effect of hardening and, in many cases, discolouring the lacquer. So Mm -hmm. you'll see that the lacquer will start to go more yellow and it will become harder, more brittle. And then Mm -hmm. eventually it starts to crack and flake. And that's purely because of chemical changes within the lacquers. How do you change that? You can't. In essence, you can't. It's a natural process. It will always happen. So that's what causes the the, the flaking and the, um, the the discoloration. As for what you do about it, you take the old stuff off and you put new stuff on. Yeah, it's a recoat job. It's It really is a recoat job. There's no mm-hmm. real way of undoing it. And some of these things will be metal plating yes. as well on domestic items. You eventually you wear off or clean off (laughs) the actual metal plating on an object. Yeah. Yeah. If I just go back very briefly to rhodium, what you'll notice is the inside of your ring, so the the, the band that goes on the inside of your hat, you'll find that that will, instead of being this bright white, you'll find that there'll be a little patch that will become this yellowy grey. And that's because the rhodium plating has worn away. Mm. Now, the answer to that is to polish it back. Mm -hmm and replace you can replace metal i watch a lot of youtube videos of like things like toy restorers and stuff yeah. and often they will replate things like the the parts of the toy cars and stuff that are metal uh, and used to have had a certain finish to them it it's not a gentle process it's not <laughs> ethically it's decidedly dubious yes yes dubious is probably a good word <laughs> Mm. I think if if you're looking from a conservation point of view, it's an absolute no-no. If you're looking from a restoration point of view, then it can increase the commercial value of objects. But if you look at from a certainly from a conservation point of view, no, 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 no. Yeah. And there is a a very simple reason for that, which is that when you repolish something, in essence, you are taking off the surface layers. Mm -hmm. You're smoothing them down and you will be inevitably removing some of the surface layers. In that, you are probably removing some of the tool marks, Mm -hmm. some of the scratches and dents and Mm. life story of the object. You know, the interesting bits. (laughs) The interesting bits, yeah. I mean, some of the most interesting stuff is in looking at the tool marks and, and thinking to yourself, this jeweler was left-handed. Mm. Might be four or five hundred years old, but if you can still see tool marks, for example, file marks, then you can actually determine whether the jeweler was left or right-handed. There's very various other things that you can discern. If you polish those away, that evidence is gone. Yeah, that's some of the story that's just gone. And that's evidence you're never, ever, ever going to get back. Am I right in thinking that if you replate something first, you have to remove the entire original the the first plating can't just replay over the top generally yes because what you're looking for is is a bond between the plating material Mm -hmm. and the 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 parent metal yeah 
I w- slightly wanted to go back to how tarnishing can be beautiful because oh. also because uh, there was a recent Twitter thread that I really enjoyed that was actually about archival material and how stains and dirt can sometimes be genuinely really mm. beautiful, although it is something that we often want cleaned off for readability or because we think paper should be cleaner than that or whatever. But they're actually, you know, like marks and stuff on documents can be really telling, but more that stains tell a story and that uh, it's not always suitable to clean things off. Uh, this was specifically to do with archival material, which was interesting in itself, but I sort of retweeted it with the comment that often what we are told to clean off, or told to well, decide to with, you know, all the appropriate communication, <laughs> wherever, um, <laughs> often what we clean off can actually be quite beautiful. Yeah. Aside from the fact that it can also be meaningful, mm. uh, it can also be pretty and that is often the case with metals is that the, the patina is a beautiful thing, mm. whether deliberate or not, uh, that actually corrosion can be incredibly beautiful. And, you know, sometimes things are deliberately rusted, for example, and things like that. But it's more about the fact that I think sometimes corrosion is generally very beautiful. And sometimes what you're looking at and you think is a beautiful object, you know, is, is literally the corrosion, which is also interesting mm. to think about. One of my... Yeah, there's value in it. I, I would certainly agree with that. And if you take for example, copper chloride, better known as verdigris. Mm. That was used as one of the pigments for oil painting for centuries. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, yeah. all that is, is copper corrosion. Yeah. And of course, there, there is a, a palette of colours that can be created on all, all the various different metals, whereby mm. you deliberately patinate the metal. Yeah. In effect, you deliberately create a layer of forced corrosion. One of my favourite aspects of metals in museum collections in particular is the um, fingerprint etching that you get. Ooh. Because yeah. of use of the object. Now, I've got a, the, the thing that jumps to mind from my own collection is actually what I've got in. It's not a museum object. It's in a box that I use for handling object handling training. And I use it because it's um, a metal candle holder with a with a handle, um, and the handle moves slightly. So that's a you know beautiful. Don't pick it up by the handle, you know, really basic. <laughs> Don't pick it up by the handle. But also, it's got fingerprints on it. The thing that I really like about it is that the fingerprints are on the handle, but then also on the sides where you'd hold on to it to put a candle into it. Oh. On the base where you put your fingers to remove the candle. And that that's I'll always remember, you know, other examples of like this is where this person put their fingers to open a metal box, for example, for jewelry or whatever. Um, and that's that's just the nicest thing, I think. But also a fantastic thing about why we need to wear gloves for metal objects. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. It's it's again, it's it's all about painting the life story and protecting mm. the life story of the object. Out of curiosity, not that we should have favourite children, but is, do you have a favourite metal uh, that you enjoy working on or with or that you think is particularly interesting in terms of its use for historic things, maybe more than more than modern things, out of curiosity? I'm, I'm going to turn this on its head. I can tell you the most Ooh. boring metal in the world. <laughs> can we do we guess? Have a guess. Have a guess. Oh, the most boring I'm really inclined to say iron, but I'm going to shake it up by saying aluminium. Ooh, okay. Interesting. (laughs) I'm going to go gold because it's overrated and it doesn't really do anything interesting. (laughs) (laughs) You've hit the nail on the head. Yes! Gold is essentially really quite a 
boring metal <laughs> because it is so... Well, it's super noble. It doesn't do anything, really. <laughs> exactly. It's almost completely inert. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's so little that can happen to it because it just doesn't react with anything. So the chemistry of yeah. gold is, to put a fine point on it, it's exceptionally boring. Whereas silver, I find much more interesting. I like working with silver. I actually do like working with gold, to be honest. I do like working with gold because actually to work with, it's it's lovely. It's You can do so much with it. It's quite soft, so it must have interesting working properties compared it, to other it, metals. It does. It does. I mean, if you look at jewellery that you buy today and a lot of the jewellery that we see through history, it's not pure gold because, frankly, pure gold would be utterly useless as jewellery. It just wouldn't, wouldn't wear well at all because it is so soft. It's, it's lovely to work with, but it's always worked as an alloy. So you're always going to have gold that's going to be mixed with copper, silver, various other metals to just give it more workable, more castable, more forgeable qualities. But at a chemical level, gold is exceptionally boring. Mm. If you look <laughs> at tin, for example... Tin has the largest number of isotopes. Someone's probably going to correct me on this, but I think it's about 18 different isotopes of tin alone. Wow. Um, It's really quite soft, but then it also can be added to other metals to make them more pourable, more more castable, uh, more workable. So it's a, a really useful metal, and its chemistry is very interesting. Chloe, you mentioned aluminium. Aluminium can be really quite interesting because you can can anodize it. Aluminium is also very, very interesting because of its strength to weight properties. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you look at airplanes, the the, the shell of an airplane is aluminium. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff that we've done with mercury, mercury gilding. Yeah. Um, Mm. Mercury is a a very interesting metal. It's the the ore of of mercury is a, um, a, a mineral called cinnabar, which is a beautiful red colour, really beautiful yeah. red colour. But then out of it, you get this liquid metal. It's the only metal that is liquid, and it's really quite toxic. And, you know, there, there was once was a time when um, school kids, uh, when they did chemistry at school, they would have quicksilver, as it was known then, or mercury, just running across, bouncing across the top of the desk, and they put their thumb on it, and it disappears. Where's it gone? Of course, you've absorbed it. Oh, so okay. you, you you have this bit of a bit of mercury in you. Well, now we have spill kits and everything's fine, right? Okay. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. You're not allowed not allowed to do that anymore. But for a long time, we did use mercury to mm. to gild mercury gilding. So mercury is one of the few substances that can dissolve gold so what you do is you you put your gold into the mercury and it dissolves into this pasty Mm. and it's it's an amalgam so the more gold you put in eventually it becomes quite a a stiff paste and you would take a rag or a cloth of some description and you would then push and and wipe on the amalgam onto the surface of say Ah. a bronze statue Mm. now that that then means that the that the gold can be worked into the amalgam, can be worked into all the crooks and crannies of the, the sculpture. But what you then do is you heat it up. Ah, uh, yes. That then turns the mercury to mercury oxide, and that's a gas, and that floats away. Mm, into in, your lungs. 
into the atmosphere and oh. your lungs and all of the plants and trees around you and the animals and you know it's, it's really horrible stuff and yeah. that is the reason why mercury gilding was back yeah. um because the toxic the, the toxicity is just so terrible i was a bit quiet there for a bit because i was trying to place the word amalgam and i realized where i'd heard it and why it horrified me the dentists Yes, because my mum has fillings made of that stuff. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, it, and it's like, oh no, we used to do that to people. We, why we, Why are we, we like did. this? Yeah. This is why we can't have nice things. Mm. And, <laughs> Come on, humans. And, and actually, it was done until relatively recently as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yes, that, that was the mercury amalgam fillings that people used to have. Oh boy, good times. <laughs> Where, where can we go from, I'm horrified by my mum's fillings, uh, we need to move on from teeth? <laughs> we talked about, you know, coating and gilding and stuff, but the, the practical elements of the conservation of fine and small metals. So one thing that I wanted to talk about, the, uh, the inclusions in metals, so gems is what I'm saying, basically. Ooh. And also the process of the physical repair of metal let's look at the, the the gemstones side of things gemstones are inherently involved with metals mm -hmm. at least partly because they themselves contain metal so for example if you look at an emerald why is an emerald green copper no it's because of chromium chromium yeah now why then is a ruby red chromium <laughs> it's it's the same metal that makes emeralds green and rubies red now if you look at for example sapphires and rubies sapphires and rubies are basically the same stone it's aluminium oxide now if you look at sapphires i think if i remember rightly it's iron that turns a sapphire blue so if you if it doesn't have iron but it does have chromium, instead of being a sapphire, it will be a ruby. Huh. So metals are inherently involved in gemstones. If you look at turquoise, it's that colour blue because of copper. If you look at any of the emerald family, the, the emerald family is quite a big family of stones, ranging from greens to pinks to beautiful scarlet red to a, a yellow. But the original mineral is based on beryllium another metal huh so gemstones are inherently involved in metals because they themselves are based on or colored mm. by metals and do these things and inclusions make them give them any conservation issues it certainly can do if you look at for example a lot of tudor and georgian jewelry mm -hmm. you would think that uh, a diamond was a diamond. Yeah, I would think that. If you look at white stones in Georgian jewellery, you would think that they would be diamonds if they were very, very expensive. Here's the catch. In Georgian times, they had no way, really, of testing what was a diamond or what was a zircon or what was a piece of glass. They knew they looked slightly different, but how do you actually test it? The only, only way that they could realistically test it was hardness. So you quite often find very old pieces of, of jewellery will have diamonds in the jewellery, but you might often find a zircon in there as well. 
because a zircon sparkles just as well as a diamond. So you can you can look at a piece of, of very old jewellery and think they're diamonds, but you're actually better off checking every single one of them. And what's the difference and diamond? A diamond is pure carbon. It's crystalline carbon. Zircon has zirconium in it and various other things. It's an, an entirely different stone. So it has different chemical properties. It has different reflective properties. It also has different properties as far as what you can do with it. Right. Because mm. you can solder, for example, right next to a diamond. Yeah. And as long as you're careful, you won't affect the diamond. You try that with a zircon, you're in real trouble. Yes, that does have conservation implications. <laughs> so what that means is that if you want to do any work to a set that you know has a zircon in it, the zircon has to come out. Mm. So you then have to weigh up. In the process of taking out the zircon, are you going to do any more damage than you would do by just leaving it alone? Yeah. Whereas with the diamonds, you have a lot more breathing space. And that goes for a lot of, uh, a lot of other gemstones as well. Certainly rubies and sapphires very often will give you a lot more breathing space. It leads us on to methods of the conservation of fine metals. So we're talking about a lot of use of heat, aren't we, in the conservation yeah. of metals? Yeah. When you look at, at metal, the, the best way to, to join two pieces of metal together is to either solder them, weld mm. them, or braze them. Brazing being a, a method almost like soldering, but it's with things like brasses and bronze. You tend to braze those rather than solder them. Brazing and soldering definitely involve heat. In the modern world, we can use epoxy resins, mm -hmm. but there's implications there as well. You have to think about reversibility. Mm -hmm. And certainly with uh, a lot of epoxy resins, there's some pretty big debates that happen with, with those. The advantage of using an, an epoxy resin or something like that is that you don't have to use the heat. If it's used very carefully, if it's used very conservatively, it can be used. The thing you have to think about is strength, durability, mm -hmm. um, the, the appearance, because for obvious reasons, resins and, and glues and that sort of thing, they just don't look the same. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, glues and resins in contact with gemstones can do quite a bit of damage depending on the stone. Right. So this is mm -hmm. why they're not a very good method of repairing jewellery. The best methods really virtually always involve removing vulnerable parts and then the use of soldering or, or brazing it's the gold standard um, mm -hmm. but of course it has to be done very carefully in mm -hmm. the modern world thankfully we have uh, laser welders and we have what we call puck welders which is an electric uh, electrical circuit which effectively arcs and melts the metal very slightly so that two parts can melt together mm -hmm. so it forms it forms a weld and that's the original metal rather than adding a third, uh, adding, adding another component. That's right, yeah. And the same goes with laser welding as well. Yeah. So you're still using the parent metal. So you're not adding a solder or a braze to the to effectively create a, a bond between the two. You are actually using parent metal. The thing you have to think about with those methods is the appearance. Because if you look at a piece of, say gold that's been laser welded mm. you can see mm. um so you've then got to think about how you're going to finish that join to make it look beautiful and to make it look 
authentically like the rest of the the the, the piece that it's it's part of, and that in itself creates problems as well. So a lot of the general rule of thumb with metals is be as conservative as you humanly can. Mm. So that's sort of the repair side of it. Cleaning side of it, it's really down to the good old scalpel and microscope, you know, removing little flakes of corrosion with the use of a microscope. This sort of reminds me of, um, and segueing slightly into our archaeological metals just for a moment, it, it reminds me of being a student and cleaning archaeological metals and learning the because we cleaned under microscopes, of course, and how the tactile nature of how the scalpel blade reacts to different types Ooh. of corrosion products. And like the, it's a fantastic learning yeah. curve. Uh, it's very difficult to describe how suddenly your hand knows which type of corrosion product it's in contact with. It's so weird. Um, we have such a weird job and it's great. <laughs> I, I, I really quite like. Um, picking away its corroded surfaces where the corrosion has grown through a layer of gilding. Ooh, uh, that's yeah. really quite, that, that can be quite exciting because you, you look at this layer of corrosion and then you start picking away at it and then you see this, this gold surface underneath, which is extremely delicate mm. because the, the, the gold, the iron corrosion has grown through it. So you've got this very, very delicate layer of gold. And just having to pick away and separate the two and then consolidate the gold back into place where it lifts away. That can be really, really satisfying. Oh, guys, we have the coolest job, just saying. <laughs> I've heard of the use of, I've never used them actually, the use of um, porcupine quills and thorns in the conservation. I heard of, I think I heard of the use of um, thorns in the conservation of the Staffordshire horde. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there's a very simple reason for that. Wood and porcupine thorns or spines are softer than the metal. They're really, really good for that sort of thing. It's it's amazing. I have not tried thorns, but I, I have definitely mm. used uh, quills before. It's really good. The other one that's probably easier to get hold of is feathers. Oh, fair point. Yeah. Walk through your local park and pick up some pigeon feathers, take them home, wash them and use them as a quill. And you can, mm. the, the, the tip is absolutely superb for cleaning off very, very delicate surfaces. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I'm totally going to try that. So you sharpen them as well you if can, you need a tighter edge? You can sharpen them, you can shape them. But the point is is that the, the, the keratin that makes up the, the feather is much, much softer than the metal. Yeah. So it won't scratch it. I have always been upset about the idea of porcupine quills because I know that, you know, you go to the zoo and you see a porcupine it's surrounded by quills it's already shed, but still, you're still taking them from the porcupine. I mean, once they're on the floor, they no longer need them. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I guess it's about ethically sourcing the quills uh, yeah. from a happy porcupine <laughs> who's shed them naturally. <laughs> Mind you, there, there, there is an alternative that is entirely ethical. A toothpick. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you can yeah. you can you can just as effectively use a toothpick. Yeah. Where's the oh god sustainability? I use a, usually nick them from the kitchen. <laughs> Where they're naturally occurring, of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, in, in all honesty, I, I think when it comes to tools for conservation, you just have to look at what you'd need to achieve and what is actually going to work. Mm. And with a bit of lateral thinking, quite often you can come up with some fantastic solutions. It's just, it's just about looking around and finding what works. I love it. 
So hi everyone, this is a welcome back for our guest for this interview. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and your experience with metals in conservation? Sure, it's very nice to be here, Chloe. I'm Dr. Eric Nordgren. I'm a lecturer in conservation at Cardiff University, and I've had about 25 years of experience as a conservator, kind of now focusing on conservation education and teaching. And I've worked on quite a wide variety of different materials, particularly from archaeological sites. But conservation of metals has always been my kind of particular focus, one of my favorite areas. So through the years, I've worked on historic metal objects, some from fine arts as well, but also metals from a wide range of archaeological sites, mm -hmm. including shipwrecks, uh, marine environments, uh, wet, wet, boggy sites, things like that mm -hmm. as well, which are uh, sometimes a particular challenge. So in our chats with Bill, um, we talked a lot about historic fine jewellery and precious metals, but these haven't been subjected to the archaeological environment. So I wondered if you could summarise what we mean by the archaeological environment um, and, you know, the v variety of the, the environments, I suppose. You mentioned wet and boggy um, and that sort of thing. So when we talk about archaeological environments, we normally mean a situation in which the metal object has spent a long period of time buried in the ground as part of a terrestrial archaeological site. Or depending on the situation, this could be a much wetter site. So it could be uh, that it's in a fairly well-drained soil mm -hmm. or fairly damp soil, or in some cases, almost a completely waterlogged situation. Could be a freshwater body of water, um, say in the sediment in a lake, or even in a marine context, such as material on the seabed or associated with a, a shipwreck. I think the, the main thing is that it's going to be protected from the elements as we would normally think of it. It's going to be not just sitting out on the surface, but it's going to be within a context which is going to mean that the environment is going to be quite a bit different than you would have, have say, for a house or museum or someplace where we might tend to keep fine historic metals and jewellery, sculpture, things like that. So what problems does this present for conservation? Well, generally speaking, archaeological environments may be more likely to promote deterioration of metals mm -hmm. through corrosion processes than the sorts of conditions that historic or fine metal work would often be kept in. So depending on the type of metal or metal alloy, this might mean that, say, an iron object would be fairly severely corroded um, by its time in a burial environment. Precious metals like gold or silver mm -hmm. or possibly even bronzes um, might be in quite a bit better condition after burial in archaeology because of the nature of those metals are a little bit less susceptible to corrosion. And so it, it kind of it depends both on the, on the type of metals that we have and also the conditions on the site. So on the one hand, archaeological sites or archaeological conditions may lead to quite a lot of corrosion. On the other hand, they may preserve metals relatively well in some cases. So, okay. Yeah. So it, it's, it's kind of interesting depending on the particular conditions. So uh, depending on environmental conditions, such as the amount of water, oxygen, factors like pH and presence of salts or um, other chemical species in, in the soil, metal objects might tend to reach a kind of equilibrium with their environment. So they might sort of corrode to a certain extent, have certain reactions happening um, as they get used to their new burial environment. But then kind of the rate of change, rate of corrosion might slow down quite a lot and they'd be relatively 
relatively stable as long as the environment they're in doesn't change too much. And so in some cases, we'd end up with metals preserved pretty well by archaeological conditions. And that's that's a really great thing. Some, t- some particular types of sites do that very well. Acidic sites, maybe not so well. They tend to be very <laughs> aggressive to metals. Uh, ones which are possibly more alkaline and more neutral might, might do quite a bit better. Also, the amount of water around and amount of oxygen is often quite important. The challenge often for conservators with archaeological metals is that when they're excavated from an archaeological context, this brings about a rapid change mm. in conditions. Mm. So the, the problem is that the amount of water and oxygen present changes a lot. Um, you get a lot more oxygen availability. And as we know, um, water and oxygen are two things required for corrosion to happen. The so baddies. Yeah, exactly. So when there's a lot of lot more oxygen available and possibly um, a drying out might happen or a change in the amount of water, having a little bit of water, oddly enough, is sometimes almost more corrosive than something being completely waterlogged with low mm-hmm. oxygen. Uh, so you get those kinds of changes happening. And those in turn promote a range of chemical reactions, corrosion reactions, changes to uh, the kind of <clears throat> relative volume of the corrosion products, all sorts of things happen. And that leads to accelerated deterioration, possibly even to the object crumbling to bits. Oh my God. After it's been excavated. So sometimes the biggest challenge really is then that that period of time post-excavation where rapid changes are happening and managing that is really the big challenge for conservators working on archaeological metals. Wow. So what are the what are the real um, uh, vulnerable metals for that then? Is it iron work? particularly yeah i think that's probably one of the one of the, the biggest culprits is uh, mm. is iron because it's um it can be a very very strong metal when it's in good condition and, and and the metal is preserved well but and used for lots of tools and weapons and things like that but it's uh on the other hand very susceptible relatively to corrosion is if the conditions are uh, favoring it um, whereas things like gold on the other end of the spectrum mm-hmm. gold platinum precious metals possibly some of the ones that bill was talking about for jewelry mm-hmm. if they did find themselves in an archaeological context, which we certainly do have in in many cases for um, you know ancient sites such as you know Roman and, and medieval, sometimes we get some wonderful uh, con- collections that have been found that way. Those might be much better preserved. They'd be less likely to have significant corrosion. Somewhere in the middle might be bronzes, copper alloys, things like that. Um, they are a bit more resistant than iron. Sometimes, though, with um, with modern materials, say 20th century archaeology, things like World War II sites, you might have uh, modern metals, things like you know, aluminium and even uh, magnesium, things like that in, in aircraft, might actually be even less stable in some, some environmental conditions than iron. So it is an interesting question of what the conditions are where the site is, including possibly underwater, and then the effect that that's going to have on the particular metal or alloy that you have. So we also talked a little bit about the ethics of conserving metals with the removal of corrosion layers and coatings and stuff. Um, Are there any additional considerations with archaeological metals that come to mind? Um, yeah, there there could be a number of things to think about with that. As with historic metals, if there are original coatings that were applied, mm-hmm. whether those were you know, 
done by the original makers of the object, maybe your colorants, things which uh, change the appearance. And I know that with certain certain assemblages of artifacts, such as the um, Staffordshire Whore, there's been a lot of really great research about all the elements of what was actually there through mm-hmm. analysis, which is, which is really, really important. So certainly there would be perhaps a concern when you're talking about archaeological material about not losing any evidence of what was originally mm. there. So thinking of archaeology as kind of a seeking out information and, and data about the past, a certain types of conservation treatments could have the potential to interfere with that. So something definitely good to consider. Another possibility could be that there might have been intentional treatment of materials by mm-hmm. the people that, that made or used them. Things like intentional or ritual damage or breakage. Yes. Uh, or even even an interesting um, cycle of repair and reuse during mm-hmm. the working life. Yeah. It comes to mind a lot for me too because you think about in a lot of cultures and societies even today there's a lot of repair and reuse of mm-hmm. things and that's it's a great way to, to make the most of materials. Also probably fairly environmentally sound mm-hmm. as well yeah, yeah. but it's um but it's it's one of those things where sometimes there are multiple events of that that might be the history part of the history of a metal object and so doing kind of rapid choices to do extensive alteration through conservation or almost a restoration approach might not always be the best idea if you want to make sure that you preserve all of that so there's a lot of um, investigation that might be needed often archaeological metals conservatives do what they call investigative cleaning. Mm-hmm. So you sort of, you might also use things like x-radiography to look at the object and inside it, but you would often want to do a bit of exploratory cleaning and try to see a little bit what's behind some of the corrosion layers. And in some cases, you might then say, well, it seems clear that there might be something close to what we think is the original surface, or maybe you feel that, you know, you could see that in an x-ray as well. And it may well be that you can find a, a layer which is close to the original profile, original surface, Mm -hmm. as as we call it. But because there's been alterations over time, chemically into corrosion, often it isn't quite the same thing as what would have been the original surface. And sometimes Mm -hmm. when conservators clean objects, such as perhaps through air abrasive cleaning or Mm -hmm. uh, with using mechanical methods, you kind of get to a point where you're you're aiming to reveal the nature of the object and and maybe reveal information. But it's it's sometimes a little bit of a question mark as to whether you're, you're kind of at that uh, original layer or or not and maybe that's not always the most important thing um it could be that you really want to get as much information as we can or be able to show this to the public and sort of as long as you're kind of honest about those those <laughs> factors there's an interesting um a lot of research that's been done in europe um mm-hmm. in, in france and switzerland um particularly by somebody named regis bertolon and uh he has looked at a lot about ways of kind of characterizing built-up layers of corrosion on archaeological metals and oh, wow. he started out with yeah, it's really interesting. He started out with copper alloys and has done it with iron as well. And looking at whether you have kind of material that's clearly external to the object, things like sand grains and things that yeah. are incorporated, or things which almost certainly have to be part of the object or, mm-hmm. or inside. And of course, you can have corrosion pits down into the object as well. So you can get a, a combination of those. And uh, I once had a chance to take a, a scanning electron micrograph of uh, that where you can see that huge thick rail of corrosion 
corrosion and how it's incorporated different things into an on, on an iron object. And so by looking at using these types of approaches and kind of carefully evaluating what we're seeing during examination and conservation, you can try to make the best decisions you can about, you know, whether you have, there's a benefit to cleaning or removing material, sometimes those considerations would be quite different for archaeological metals than they might be, say, for historic ones where the metal itself is quite well preserved. It might have a, a thin layer of corrosion or tarnish or discoloration relative to an archaeological one where there's been a massive alteration. Mm. So really thick layers of iron corrosion or possibly even um, with um, copper alloys, you can have similar. Sometimes you can have something that's an alloy and uh, it doesn't look like it, what it really is. So you might have a coin, which is a silver alloy with a lot of copper that will look green because oh, wow. it's had so much of those green copper yeah. corrosion yeah. products covering the surface. And mm-hmm. then you could remove some of those and actually see that there is a silver component as well. So it's definitely a process of examination, investigation, deciding what ethically is the best thing to do, as well as considering what the information potential is. And sometimes the answer might be it's really best not to go too far in terms of interventive treatment. And maybe it's more about recording. X-radiography can be really helpful in that regard as well. Um, so it, it, it really depends on what the goals, as in other conservation as well, what, mm-hmm. what are the goals particularly? And and um, But I think it's really interesting to consider that, that metals and their preservation do offer the potential to preserve different types of information. And um, that can include you know, original manufacture, repair, reuse, possibly just the site conditions can sometimes be reflected in the condition of the object as well. So we might actually learn by studying groups of objects on different sites and measuring their condition. Uh, We might learn more and more about the processes of change that happen, and that can actually kind of advance conservation as well. So finally, what's your favorite metal and why? Right. Well, I think that would probably be iron. (laughs) It's, you know, I like lots of metals. I love their properties. I I really, um, in many ways, a lot of what I do is a bit kind of focused towards material science and understanding behavior of metals and also um, how they've been worked in the past. So all sorts of metals have wonderful properties. Iron is amazing in that it has so many great properties and uses. It can be worked in so many ways really strong and capable material, but the challenge of it for conservation is its vulnerability Mm. to corrosion. And that's true in lots of different contexts, uh, even outside in atmospheric conditions or buried in a site. I've had the opportunity to work on a lot of marine iron as well Mm -hmm. uh, from shipwrecks that have been, even if they've only been underwater for 150 years, like the USS Monitor, you can have some really, really significant issues because of the um, so the, the salt content can mm. be a big factor for iron, particularly so chlorides. It's probably one of iron's biggest uh, biggest enemies in that way. But it does lead to a lot of interesting and complex chemistry um, and trying to tease out what may be happening in given conditions and how we can best approach uh, solutions to conserving iron or at least maybe slowing down its deterioration significantly is, is a really great challenge and something I, I really enjoy. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. Oh, thank you, Chloe. It's been been really great. Today I'm reviewing histories of conservation and art history in modern Europe, edited by Sven Dupree 
and Jenny Bobble. This is a 2022 Rutledge publication, and I'm reading the ebook version as I review this. This book looks at the emergence of so called scientific conservation, or air quotes, technical art history in the late 1800s to 1950s. It's attempting to chart the patchwork history of our profession, or some version of it, in 14 chapters over three sections. In the first chunk of the book, we're looking at science and authenticity. We explore the first forays into quality checking artist materials, the beginnings of scientific investigation via analysis, and the start of the belief that science is the one true way, as opposed to the more subjective ways of looking at art. I find it especially interesting that early investigation of, for example, famous paintings were sometimes covered up by the leaderships of museums and galleries. While the motives are a little bit uncertain, I feel like it echoes the current fears around sharing conservation data out of some sort of sense of institutional embarrassment or a wish to look perfect to the world. This section of the book highlights that the marriage of science and art isn't exactly an easy union, and I should think the pair needs some serious couples therapy in many cases. It turns out early conservation history is full of, let's say, colourful characters. Gruff, odd, anti-authoritarian, belligerent and willing to try new things, unwilling to shut up. And you know what? I think I like it. Rarely does anything progress by people keeping their heads down or saying or trying nothing, so it feels oddly good that we've got a rebellious start to us. The second part of the book deals with education and professionalisation. I love that this section includes archaeological conservation, as it and archaeology is one of my first big passions. It explores the blurred lines between restoration and conservation that we still struggle with today, and the fascinating parallels with how art history insisted on becoming academic. A field in its own right, elevated from Bildung to Wissenschaft, as the Germans apparently put it. Art history can possibly belong to everyone. You have to pursue it, you have to study at a university, put on a little cap, be part of the club. Oh wait, that sounds awfully familiar. One of my favourite quotes here is from Helmut Ruhemann, uh, head of the conservation department at the Kaiser Friedrich Museum in Berlin. He indicated that the qualifications of an excellent restorer would be a rare combination of skills and excellent character. I feel like I should work that on a cross-stitch. Anyway, I digress. Suffice to say, there was a fair bit of squabble about how or if we should train restorers or conservators. Should such training take place in a museum, at university, in a special school? Should it teach chemistry, art history, style, technique, analysis, law? Should it have exams, reports, or should the test be a reproduction painting? Ugh, again with the paintings. I mean, I don't know that we ever figured it out, guys. Each country does it differently, even today. In fact, usually in many different ways, and that's fine. But it's interesting to see how it all began. In the third and final section of the book, we're dealing with museums and institutions. It explores how museums started hiring and even growing their own conservators, not in a jar or anything. The sometimes murky past of the conservation discipline and the run-up to World War II. The horribly still relevant matter of salvaging heritage in the wake of war. And how conservation has often been hidden rather than celebrated in museums. 
I especially love the gentle tracing of early professionals in archival records, how we were finding the words, going from mender to restorer to now conservator. We still don't really know what we are. Other people certainly don't, and that's interesting to think about. The book ends on a spicy note, comparing the first professionals to today's, addressing whose voices are missing from its pages and what expertise even means. The last chapter is called Expertise, Multiple Actors and Multiple Voices and is written by Noémie Etienne. It's succinct and wonderful. It addresses our ivory towers, our struggle with legitimacy and how we're not as neutral as we like to pretend. It's the perfect end to the book. This is not a linear history book, rather it's a bunch of moments, snapshots of history, but it helps us paint a picture. It starts heavy on paintings, sorry about the picture thing again, and in fact I felt a little lost in the world of art with a capital A for a while, but it finds its feet and it gets better. Sorry, paintings conservators. It's not always an easy read. Some chapters are very heavy with jargon. But if you can push past the overly academic tone of some chapters, you'll find an interesting book that helps us look at ourselves. This book has 270 pages, some colour illustrations, but mostly black and white where applicable, and is available from the Rutledge website, as well as other book retailers. It costs £120 as a hardback, or £27.74 for some reason as an ebook at the time of recording. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. Read the Seaward, and you'll be listening to Bill Hawkes, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenny Mathiason. Join us next time for a conference special. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaward.show, tweet us at the Seaward Podcast, or simply email us on theseawardpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects for Callum Robertson. And this has been a Wooden Dice production. Mm-hmm.